I need you to like musicals. I need you to like musicals. I need you to like musicals. I know you think they're sappy and bland. And you hated La La Land. But I gotta make you understand They can be profound and beautiful So I need you to like musicals Oh, what a circus. Oh, what a show. It's my show. I need you to like musicals. Welcome to the only podcast with annoying, usually negative opinions about a medium that I claim to revere. Uh, we're recording today under strange circumstances once again. This is a nighttime recording situation, just like last week, which I guess makes it a little bit less strange. This is episode seven of seven, two of which have been at night. Anyway, um, what's strange about it is, I need to be honest with you guys, the fly situation in my house in the San Fernando Valley has gotten out of control. It's safe to say the flies are winning. Um, I don't know how the fuck they're getting in and multiplying at the rate that they are. I uh, am re-strategizing as I go here. What I've done this evening, I'm home alone at the moment. Well, not counting the flies and the dog, the beloved French bulldog. What I did was before I, I, I watched my, my little musicals and did my little thing and took my little notes. And then what I did was I put Dot, the French bulldog, in another room with a towel uh, plugging the bottom of the door. Then, I went ahead and I broke out the raid. And now, you know, I at a certain point, you gotta just stop bullshitting around with essential oils and home remedies for things. And you gotta break out some fucking chemicals. Sometimes that's the only way to get things done in this world. So once I did that, once I, you know, all of the flies saw that and they said, RAID! Just like, um... You've all seen those commercials. And uh, I sort of pranced around my house, covering my nose and mouth, spraying the contents of an entire bottle of Raid in every room except for the one that the dog was in. And of course the room that I'm in now. Then I came in here with my energy drink and my laptop and my microphone, shut the door. Um, And when I go back out, I can only assume there will be a horrific bloodbath of flies that have died as a result of raid. While we honor the brave flying insects that gave their lives here today in Van Nuys, California, I do want to get to some musical theater news of the day. Um, Juilliard is making their MFA acting program tuition free, starting in the 2024-25 school year. It's all gonna be funded by scholarships. That's cool, I guess. Um, You know. It'll make it uh, more of a competitive situation, I imagine, uh, and more about uh, more of a meritocracy. Hopefully this is a symptom of something that uh, colleges in general start doing. I don't know anything about anything. That's just uh, the most compelling piece of news I saw. Like in a sea of uh, less than interesting, like the Betty Boop musical that's coming out or whatever Leslie Odom Jr. is up to this week. It was like, okay, well, that's this is the best thing I can see. Um, I feel like this podcast, I don't know, I don't want to uh, jinx this, or uh, not jinx it. I, I don't want to have a self-fulfilling prophecy. I feel like this is going to be a half-assed episode, based on uh, my notes here and uh, the shows that we're talking about. Let's just get down to it. Let's stop preambling. Let's stop talking about flies. The shows that we're going to talk about today are Evita and Miss Saigon. Now, 
Um, these are both stories. This his they have same things in common, which is why I'm talking about them on the same episode. Uh, they ha involve political elements of foreign countries that end up being pretty irrelevant to the personal story being told and the characters that are the central focus, the character studies, which in both cases, in both shows, not nearly as interesting as the historical narratives that frame their stories. So, oh, also they both have had iterations that starred the uh, legendary white actor, Jonathan Price, playing a non-white character, awkwardly. They are also both shows that started on the West End and moved to Broadway, and when they did so, there were race-based controversies involving actors' equity. These are the ways that Evita and Miss Saigon are connected. Uh, we are going to talk about Evita first, and I want to tell you something. Um, at this point, if you went to high school with me from the year 2000 to 2002, for those three years, um, you may notice a pattern here. I didn't do this on purpose. But what I ended up doing was uh, working my way backwards autobiographically through my high school, and I, I imagine eventually junior high school, resume. Um, by this I mean I did Jesus Christ Superstar episode before last, and then last week I talked about Carousel. This week I'm talking about Evita. That was, uh, yeah, 10th grade, 11th grade, 12th grade. It's in reverse order, however. So I did Evita in 10th grade. So uh, there you go. I am not, and if you're listening to this and you went to high school with me, please know that I am not like Napoleon Dynamite's brother. Is that his brother? His uncle, who's trying to relive uh, former high school football glory uh, because he has nothing left in his life. I got a lot going on, guys. I'm studying for the LSAT. Take that, motherfuckers. <laughs> How you doing? How's your, uh, how are the, uh, commercial auditions going, you pricks? <laughs> yeah, let's start with Evita. The year is 1973. Um, Tim Rice, the idiot, the, the bad lyricist, this is already so negative, um, he listens to a radio show, driving around in his little car, about Ava Perone. And since he was a stamp collector in his youth, he remembers her because he had her on some stamps. Tim Rice, as we learned in our Jesus Christ Superstar episode, is the longtime collaborator of Andrew Lloyd Webber. Um, at this point, they've done their Joseph musical and their Jesus musical. He gets real excited. He gets very into the whole story of Ava Perone. He names his daughter after her. That's really... That's fandom right there. Lloyd Webber, Andrew, he, he, Tim Rice brings the idea to Lloyd Webber. Let's write a musical about this. And Lloyd Webber says, no, I don't want to do that. I want to write something about Jeeves, the butler, <laughs> which he does. He writes a, a show called Jeeves that later gets revised and called By Jeeves. Um, and it's mostly because he doesn't want to fuck around trying to write Paso Dobles and tangos and shit. But um, after this Jeeves nonsense, uh, a few years later, which he writes with someone else, not Tim Rice, he says, all right, fine. We can write your Ava musical now, Tim, if it's that important to you. Now that your daughter is old enough to know uh, what you do for a living, might as well. Yeah. So um, the writing of it, the, the narrative of Evita, the musical, is based on a book, mostly. It's a book called The Woman with the Whip, which is a highly critical of Ava Perone book. Um, 
A lot of people are mad at this book in retrospect because it apparently has like no sources that it cites and it's like real salacious and melodramatic and bias. Uh, written by Mary Main, who is an anti-Peronist uh, detractor. So um, there's, a, there's a bit of a they said they said on um, the Peron regime and whether or not it was good. People seem to feel strongly in both directions. We're going to talk a little bit about that later, but I promise not in a way that is presumptuous or annoying. Um, I'm going to have a very light touch with all of that. We're here to talk about musicals, not politics. So uh, they do the same thing that they did with Jesus Christ Superstar. They do the concept album first before it's on stage. They release the LP, 1976. Um, this is where we get a brilliant performer uh, named Colm Wilkinson who will make history in the ensuing decade as Jean Valjean and uh, you know you know who he is he's got a very um, recognizable uh, speech pattern he's an Irishman who am I uh, <laughs> one day more <laughs> can I condemn this man to slavery I'm not good at impressions guys stop making me do them before they get to Colm Wilkinson, they try to get John Fogarty involved, but he said no for him. Then they try to get Murray Head, who did Judas on the Jesus Christ Superstar album, uh, and he actually did a few demos from them, but they said, ah, this doesn't have the same magic as it did when he sang Judas. But they make the album. Um, I've heard it. I listened to it in high school. Yeah, I mean, Colm Wilkinson is really the, the MVP of that fucking thing. He sings the shit out of those songs, as he always does every song. If you've seen the film of Les Miserables, um, Colm Wilkinson makes a little cameo in there as, I don't know what you call him, the bishop, whatever, the guy at the beginning that helps Jean Valjean out by not turning him into the police. He's the original, the OG Jean Valjean from Broadway, and so he made an appearance, now an old man, in the 2012 film of Les Miserables. Um, after they make this album, Andrew Lloyd Webber and Tim Rice, they send it to Harold Prince, Legendary director Harold Prince, longtime collaborator of the great Stephen Sondheim. He is reluctant at first, but then he agrees to mount it in the West End, not in America, even though he's an American director, certainly. Um, it moves from the West End to Broadway in 1979, which is the same year Sweeney Todd came out, also directed by Harold Prince. Big year for the man. Big, big, uh, big year for Prince. The two, the leading man and the leading lady, in this original Broadway cast of Evita are Patti Lapone and Mandy Patinkin. And this is where these two figures emerge. These two enormous figures of Broadway whatever. This is where they they uh, first uh, have their time to shine. It's a hit. They revise it one or two times. They make a shitty movie of it in 1996 with Madonna and Antonio Banderas. They were actually going to make a movie of it right away in the early 80s going to be directed by that Ken Russell character who we talked about in the Tommy episode who made the movie of Tommy and the boyfriend um, and they were going to cast either Barbara Streisand or Liza Minnelli as Evita and either Barry Gibb or Elton John as Che I'm glad they didn't do that that would have been fucking strange uh, and then of course in 2012 uh, there is a famously bad Broadway revival with Ricky Martin in the role of Che. I've heard bits and pieces of that, and yeah, that's a that's bad casting. 
don't make Ricky, Ricky Martin pretend like uh, he can act because he, he, he it wasn't very good. Um, my journey with Evita, when the movie came out in 1996, I was 13 years old. I had never heard of the musical until the movie came out. And I wasn't too excited about it, but I, you know, when you're 13 and you are into movies, you kind of just want to go to the movies, even if it's going to be bad. Um, and so I went, you know, get a nice popcorn and a soda. Um, I was spellbound at the very beginning of it. I was like, oh, fuck yeah. Uh, because it's, it comes in hot with some energy. And then I was bored to death in the second half of this thing. Just, God, uh, very bored. So, um, my first year at this arts high school, like I said, was in 10th grade. Uh, I had not stepped foot on the campus yet, but all of the orientation information or the stuff that, uh, came in the mail or whatever said that the big musical they were doing was Evita and it had audition information, all the things to do. So I familiarized with my, myself with it. I rented the movie to see it again. You know, it had been three years. Uh, so I watched the movie again. I listened to the album with Mandy Patinkin on there. Uh, I wanted the part of Che Guevara. I didn't get the part, which seems to be a running theme in, in these episodes. Uh, but guess who did get the part? And I'll say him by name, I don't care. Taron Killam. The gentleman from Saturday Night Live. Uh, if you don't know who I'm talking about, t g give yourself a, a minute or two to look him up. If you were watching Saturday Night Live in, let's call it, the early to mid-2010s, um, I could be wrong about that. Maybe it's the late 2000s, I don't know. Taron Killam was uh, a cast member. And uh, this was a, in 10th, when I was in 10th grade, he was a senior, and he was a very different Taron Killam than the one we know today. Um, he was a bit of a, a heartthrob. He had a James Vanderbeek vibe to him. And um, I can, I, I feel like uh, I can say, truthfully, that I was bullied <laughs> by Taron Killam. We were not friends. He was like friends with my friends. But then um, my friend Michael and I, used to three-way call people secretly all the time, like they do on Mean Girls, but you, the other person doesn't know that you're on the, that someone else is listening. And uh, I had one line in Evita. I ended up being a general slash aristocrat in Evita. And my one solo was in the middle of the song, A New Argentina. I sang a bigger slice of every cake. And I think I sang it a lot like that, but I probably... Um, hit that R a little harder. I went like, a bigger slice of every cake. So when my friend Michael called this Taron Killam character, and I was listening on the other end, he brought up my name, and then Taron Killam did a mean impression of me singing that line. So uh, there you go. Uh, congratulations on your success, but uh, you, you owe me an apology in writing. Uh, go ahead and leave it in the iTunes comments if you would. Taron Killam, thank you very much. Uh, the young lady that played Evita in our production became a apparently a very serious, acclaimed mezzo-soprano in the world of operas and, and the Metropolitan, etc. So that's good for her. The cast party of this show was uh, legendary at our school for years. No one would shut the fuck up about it. Um, and, you know, without getting into details, there was just a lot of shit going on at that party. There was a lot of uh, the, the, uh, scandals and uh, controversies and drugs and drinking and teenage uh, weirdness so um it was and it was probably like the third time in my life that i got drunk so it was uh it was a precursor to a long road of uh weirdness so anyway like i mentioned before this school uh that i went to it's it still exists to this day and uh as a cruel joke uh the the college that i attend 20 years later than most people go to college is the high school is on that campus. So I often see 
these little arts high schoolers. And at least when I went there, the teachers took themselves very seriously, and the school took itself very seriously. If you went there for vocal music, you were either studying uh, jazz or opera. And I did, I went for theater, but those were the two options for vocal music. And musical theater was like this sort of uh, redheaded stepchild that uh, everyone, all the other serious teachers were very uh, contemptuous of. And it was like an elective you did one day a week. So um, most of the people in the cast, a lot of them were from the opera program. And so my first day of rehearsal, when we were learning the parts for the Requiem Eternum Dona Evita, um, and the Salve Regina, Mater Misericordiae, Vital Jocero Espes Nostra, Salve, Salve Regina, A te clamamos, Exulis Filieva, A te suspreamos gementes, et plentes, o clemens, o pia. I didn't know I was going to keep going with that. I, there, there's probably so much knowledge I could have in my brain that is being forced out by the unflappable memorization of lyrics from Evita. I, I didn't do it on purpose. I, I I cannot unmemorize things, and it causes me all kinds of pain. Hopefully, as I get older, it'll all fall out somehow. But m my whole point is, like, I was intimidated, but also impressed when I started singing with these people, some of whom were in an opera program, because it sounded like grown-ups, and it was hard music, and it was like, oh, fuck, we're really doing this. Like, I'd come from doing, you know, Grease, oh, spoiler alert, for next week, <laughs> at uh, ninth grade. Um, and being the only one who knew their way around uh, sheet music at all, and then going to this arts high school where it was all very serious. So anyway, um, you know, since then, I've auditioned once or twice for this when it came around. The thing is, I'm pretty sure that white guys are not allowed to play Che anymore, which is fine by me. But And also, like, there's no real reason to play Che. And because Mandy Patinkin has played Che. And what am I going to do? Something interesting that Mandy Patinkin didn't do? No. Bullshit. <laughs> it's the same problem with George and anything else, you know, an actor like him touches, is, uh, no, th this is closed. Case closed. Mandy Patinkin did it. And the rest of us are just gonna orbit around him forever. Although, apparently, he's an asshole. Uh, and he's annoying on TikTok. So, here's what's interesting about the beginning of Evita. It is eerily similar to the beginning of Jesus Christ Superstar. And just like Jesus Christ Superstar, the opening number, or the first song song, after all that requiem and the cinema and whatever the fuck, uh, Oh What a Circus is the best song in the show, if you ask me. Um, I, and, it's, it's, and it's doing the same thing as Heaven on Their Minds is doing in Superstar, where it's uh, a skeptical narrator character, uh, you know, expressing skepticism. <laughs> for the subject of the, the title character. Um, so that's what that is. It's it's just a great song. I think that's why I got excited watching the movie for the first time, is because it's like, whoa, look at this guy. He's singing this song, Antonio Banderas. Um, and just tonally, I really liked what he was doing in that song, but then his tone really never changes throughout the rest of the film. Like Antonio Banderas makes like two to three facial expressions uh, and just broods the whole time. Here's what Patti Lapone had to say about her originating the role, at least on Broadway, uh, of Evita. Evita was the worst experience of my life. I was screaming my way through a part that could only have been written by a man who hates women. And I had no support from the producers who wanted a star performance on stage, but treated me as an unknown backstage. It was like Beirut, and I fought like a banshee. 
Strong words from Patti Lapone. In fact, you know, and she did have vocal problems as a result of all that screaming. And you can hear that screaming on the original cast recording. Uh, they modify some of that in the movie, I noticed, and it doesn't have quite the same effect. But she's belting the living shit out of uh, those songs in a way that apparently people should not belt because uh, it hurts the hurts them. So when and when she had the vocal problems, they tried to bring Ellen Page in to play it. She had played the part in the West End. Ellen Page, the fucking memory cats lady. Actors Equity said no way. Fuck no. <laughs> uh, you can't. We need an American actor in this role. You can't bring in a Brit to play this because we are Actors Equity. Um, Patty Lapone says that this is a lie. That this didn't really happen. Um, also, apparently, Tim Rice was fucking Ellen Page. Tim Rice and Ellen Page were an item. So who knows? You know, some some saucy back and forth on this. The, um, now, the biggest problem that historians have with the musical, which is fair, uh, is this Che Guevara business. What is the connection between Che Guevara and Eva Perón? There is none. Um, he he was not involved. He he wouldn't have given a shit. He was going around South America on a motorbike or in medical school when all of this was happening. And he wasn't involved in politics yet. So, um, and what's interesting, uh, it's actually Harold Prince's fault that that character is literally Che Guevara. At first, he was just going to be the embodiment of a pro-union working class person that was anti-Perone. But um, Harold Prince came on the scene when they did it on stage and was like, we need to dress him up like Che Guevara <laughs> with the whole thing. And in the movie, um, they kind of correct for this. They don't even, I mean, at no point in the show was he ever called Che. So Antonio Banderas in the movie just seems like a shape-shifting narrator. And I guess that's better, but uh, whatever. But I guess the one thing that is served by the fact that this is Che Guevara is that Eva Perón and Che Guevara, what they have in common is that they're symbols that people project things onto. And um, yeah, Tomas Eloy Martinez, who is an Argentine, Argentine journalist, Argentinian <laughs> journalist, he says, I think this is well said, quote, Che as well as Evita symbolize certain naive but effective beliefs. The hope for a better world, a life sacrificed on the altar of the disinherited, the humiliated, the poor of the earth. They are myths which somehow reproduce the image of Christ. I don't know. Is that naive? Che Guevara did uh, win. <laughs> I mean, they killed him uh, afterwards, but he did uh, overthrow the Batistas. So is that really naive? Oh, naive but effective? Okay, we're good. Um, and I And just for the record, I have no strong, uh, inarguable opinions about Che Guevara. Uh, my friend Sam, who is uh, born in El Salvador, is uh, and my mother actually, are, they're both very pro Che Guevara. They got had posters of him and such. Sam actually was in an elevator once uh, with a Che Guevara t-shirt on, but a button-up shirt like half buttoned over it. And a, uh, a Latino woman came in with a child and said to him, excuse me, could you unbutton that shirt so we could see your t-shirt? And Sam was like, oh, okay. And he unbuttoned his t-shirt and the woman said to the child, you see that? That's the man that killed your grandfather. And then Sam got in an argument with this woman. So uh, there you go. I, As far as I'm concerned, um, 
I don't want to be like the, I, I feel self-conscious. I, I like the idea of uh, revolution, but I also like the idea of nonviolence. And I don't want to be a guy that's comfortable in my Western privilege saying, yeah, man, revolution, when I have nothing at stake. So it is not for me to like that. And yeah, people shouldn't uh, die. But if you're railing against Che Guevara and you're, um, you know, you think uh, James Comey is a hero or <laughs> that America is exceptional on any level, then shut up. So uh, everybody shut up, myself included. Podcast over. Just kidding. There's this whole thing with Agustin Magaldi, who has the distinction of being the first man to be of use to Eva Duarte. He comes to her town of Hunin. She's 15 years old, being played by Patti Lapone, who was 30, and Madonna, who was 38 at the time when they did that, uh, respectively. That's weird, isn't it? How could that be? Yeah, makes sense. So, um... He comes to the town, and he's played in the Broadway cast, the Broadway album, which is great. I like the original cast recording of this, by a man named Mark Sue Cyrus. I was befuddled by Mark Sue Cyrus. I was, I hit a wall trying to figure out this man's ethnicity, because he, for sure, was an original cast member of Pacific Overtures, which boasted an all-Japanese or all-Asian cast. And then here he is playing Agustin Magaldi uh, in, you know, an Argentinian uh, tango singer. So I was like, what the fuck is going on? I tried to look him up. I found out he died young in a car crash in New Jersey at the age of 31. And that was a bummer. I like his voice. He's got like a heft to his voice. But um, my dear girlfriend who did me the service of watching Evita with me today. Um, when I told her about this conundrum that I couldn't find the information, she went on a deep dive and found out through obituaries of he and his mother and father that he was half white, half Chinese. So mystery solved. Mark Sue Sires, the original Magaldi. Um, Agustin Magaldi was a real guy. He also never met Eva Perone and they, they do him dirty here. They, they, uh, paint him as a, a guy that goes to small towns and uh, fucks teenagers and promises them the world. So uh, that's too bad that they did that. Hey, maybe he did it, but maybe he didn't. In this scene, she keeps saying, I want to be a part of be a Buenos Aires, Big Apple. And I was like, what the fuck? Like, first time I heard that, I was like, why do they keep saying Big Apple? What am I missing here? And I think it's Tim Rice being infantilizing to the audience. It's saying, oh, in order for them to understand what Buenos Aires is, we need to connect it to like, oh, it's a big city, like the Big Apple. Hey, oh, that's also a BA. Um, very stupid. And that's what they kind of do all the way through this. It's an annoying talking down of uh, history to you, my dear audience, that uh, shows a real contempt for the audience. Ava's siblings, and... I don't know if her mother's involved, but maybe she is. But her siblings are toxic. Like, they're they're trying to blackmail this guy to take her away. They know that he fucked her. She's 15, and they're like, she really brightened up your out-of-town engagement. She gave you all she had. She wasn't in your contract. Like, And now they threaten to tell the papers. And it's like, if they don't take 
her with him to Buenos Aires. The whole thing is seedy and fucked up. It didn't happen in real life. In fact, Ava's mother took her to Buenos Aires to be an actress, which is, you know, pretty common story. Uh, especially here in America, that sort of thing. Um, che in the movie, the way that he keeps showing up in different costumes and just is always around to talk about Evita, the connection that I made, and this is just because I'm in the middle of a rewatch of this and I'm, I'm watching it with my girlfriend who likes true crime but has never seen this, uh, the Paradise, Paradise Lost uh, trilogy. You guys ever seen that? It's the documentary trilogy from the, over the course of like a couple decades about the murders in Robin Hood Hills. Oh, sorry. I just hit the hi-hat here. I have a new drum set next to my recording area. Um, but there's this, the character of Mark Byers, and he's not a character, he's an actual human being, who they suspect for a while after the boys are falsely accused. He just seems to always be there. Anytime somebody is like outside of a courthouse or like walking down the streets in any part of Arkansas, like talking about the case, he's there saying, you know, that's not true. Those boys are murderers. And Che Guevara, in the movie of Evita at least, seems to be like Mark Byers. Anyway, there you go. That's a niche opinion uh, based on the two things that I watched this week. After he takes her to Buenos Aires and she does a whole what's new Buenos Aires. It's got a part in it that's very difficult to clap uh, during the dance. Uh, it goes. I probably did it wrong right there. Um, but then it gets to a song called Good Night and Thank You. They do a weird thing in the movie. I guess we'll talk about the movie at the end here. This is kind of out of order. But um, they change it up in the movie. Let's just talk about it now because I brought it up. Who gives a shit? Um, when they get there uh, in the show, in the original writing of the show, she says, good night and thank you, Magaldi. You brought me to Buenos Aires and now I don't need you anymore. Fuck off. And then it's a whole song with all these guys that she's, she's social climbing. She gets a boyfriend who's more and more powerful each time and works her way up. In the movie, I think because they're trying to make her look more sympathetic, is that she gets there and um, Magaldi has a wife and child and brings her to the staircase for some reason and then goes inside with his wife and is just like, well, sorry, fuck off. And then she sings another suitcase, which is not Evita's song in the play. It's a song uh, for a walk-on character named The Mistress. And first of all, that sucks. I, Madonna does not need more to sing in that fucking movie. Madonna never shuts up in it. It's like all her singing and with an occasional Banderas brooding and singing. And uh, yeah, it's a shame. No good. No good. And it's also weird that she would go from... It makes Evita seem bipolar because she just did that Buenos Aires song and then all of a sudden she's very sad. So yeah... That's my opinion. But good night and thank you. The refrain of that, the lyrics are so bad. I'm going to go through this whole thing to you. And I want you to tell me, call it out, when I say something of any substance in this run-on sentence I'm about to sing for you. There is no one, no one at all, never has been and never will be a lover, male or female. Who hasn't an eye on? In fact, they rely on tricks they can try on their partner. They're hoping their lover will help them or keep them, support them, promote them, don't blame them. You're the same. And they sing it like three fucking times. You could have said that in 
Four words. People have agendas sometimes. One, two, three, four. But it's like, it, it reads like it's being translated. Like it, the, the, it's so unnatural. And when we were watching it, I was looking at my girlfriend's face while this was happening. We had the subtitles on. She asked for the subtitles. And it made me start cracking up because just in the middle of this long sentence, she was just like, what the fuck? What are they saying? There is no one, no one at all, never has been and never will be a lover, male or female, who hasn't an eye on. In fact, they rely on tricks they can try on their partner. It's it's really stupid and bad. Um, there's a song that is not in the show that was on the original concept album that they brought back into the movie uh, with different titles. So the lady's got potential, which, um, I don't know, the lyrics are very different. It's like about insecticide. <laughs> I get some sort of... Eh, it's about insecticide in the fucking concept album. And then on in the movie, it's just... It's the story of the military coup uh, and everything and the earthquake. But it's a banger. It's, um, you know, it's a rock song. It's one of the... And the rock songs are the best songs in the show. This one in Perone's Latest Flame and that part in... Um, Oh, what a circus. The, Sing, you fools, but you got it wrong. Uh, and it's got an intro that sounds a little too close to Johnny B. Good. Um, on stage, we get Bob Gunton playing Juan Peron. And when I was listening to it, I recognized him from the sequel of Ace Ventura. Ace Ventura, When Nature Calls. Uh, it's very funny. I, is he British? I don't know what he is. Or is he South African or something? But he was he's rolling the shit out of his arse playing Juan Perón. Dice are rolling. It's very weird. Uh, another suitcase, like I said. So it's supposed to be sung by the um, mistress. And I love the voice of the singer on the original cast. Her name is Jane O'Ringer. I did no research on Jane O'Ringer. Which is a shame. Uh, Jane O'Ringer deserves more out of me. I'm just going to look her up really quick. Oh my god. So the first thing that comes up is a Tumblr page. I don't really use Tumblr. Called Whatever Became of Jane O'Ringer. Let's find out together, guys. Um, she became a lawyer. And she has a few kids. And her husband looks a lot like Sean Hayes. And it's crazy. She's really good friends with Bob Gunton, who played Perone, and says Mandy Patinkin is like her big brother. She has a poster of her and Bob during another suitcase, another hall in her house. She loves animals, and she goes on a lot of trips around the world to take care of elephants and stuff. She lives somewhere in California, I think. There you go. Jane O'Ringer, folks. Wow. Good to know. She, she did it the right way. She did one, one and done. One show and get out. before uh, Don't get it on you. Uh, just, you know, do your thing and leave. Good job, Jane O'Bringer. You sound very nice. She's got a very nice soprano voice in that song. And that song is like, uh, it's like it's cramming in a hit song. You could tell. Because there's no reason. Damn it! Sorry. Can you guys hear that when I hit the hi-hat? I'm going to move over so it doesn't happen again. There's no reason for that song to exist in the story. It's just he's kicking the mistress out of the house. And then she's singing, uh, where am I going to? Where am I going to? Perone's Latest Flame is one of my favorite songs in the whole show. The funny thing about that that I realized this time around, so the best part of that song is the what the soldiers sing because it's so uh, over the top and shocking uh, and chauvinistic. 
And it kind of proves, oh, so Tim Rice can write good lyrics. Maybe he's he's a chauvinist and he just this gave him some time, some room to shine. The, the her only good parts are between her thighs. She should stare at the ceiling, not reach for the skies. It sits very nicely on the music there also. Rare case in a Lloyd Webber Rice show of the music sitting nicely on the lyrics. A very bad song called Dice Are Rolling, which um, we used to call Rice Aroni, or at least I did, because that's what it sounds like when he's saying Rice Aroni. It's just a conversation in bed between Perone and Ava. And those are the more boring parts of the show where the husband and wife talk to each other. Um, New Argentina is the act two, act one finale. It's a banger. Uh, in the movie, they make it, it's motivated by Juan Perone's arrest. And it turns out, and so he gets arrested, which is true. But then the song is like her going around and like uh, whipping up support to get him released. It turns out that that is a bullshit lie that the administration spread after they were in power that she did this. It's not true. Like, when he was arrested, she was just an actress, and she did nothing about it. Um, and at this point, it's like the, the Perone thing and the Ava Perone thing is populism. Yeah, yeah. It's, they got the people on their side, motherfucker. Yeah, the descamisados, the shirtless ones. And uh, he's elected president, uh, the first president, uh, Argentina. And at the top of Act Two, Ava sings, Don't Cry For Me, Argentina. And I know that this is the hit from the show that everybody knows. I know that this is like the one in 1996. You had to walk around hearing this a lot. Don't cry for me, Argentina. It was on TV a lot. Um, was it? I don't know. I feel like I heard it a lot. And it's the song that people associate with the show. Don't cry for me, Argentina. But if you listen to that song in the context of where it's being sung, why it's being sung, what the fuck are you talking about and why? They just won this election. Everybody's real excited. And then she gets up there and talks about herself in this way that is so... It's like an... She sounds like a Hollywood producer toasting himself on his own birthday. And as for fortune and as for fame, oh, I never really wanted them. And I love you and hope you love me. I, it's, it's, it's really... It's weird and gross. I don't get it. I'm more than willing to admit that there's something going on in that song that I don't get. But this is the first confirmed case of uh, why do we give a shit about Ava Perone. Fun fact, in 1996, when this song was being sung everywhere, I came up with what can only be described as a brilliant parody of this song at the age of 13. Don't cry for me, my tortilla. The truth is I want to eat you, but you're so soggy because you've been crying. And that's it. I didn't have the last two lines uh, worked out. That was, uh, what was it right there? There you go. Yeah, so I don't know what she actually said uh, outside the Casa Rosada, <laughs> which is how Mandy Patinkin pronounce it. Mandy Patinkin sings Che in a total white boy, uh, you know, with no accent at all until he hits one of those words. 
Like, she had her moments, she had some style. The best show in town was the crowd outside the Casa Rosada. <laughs> it's like uh, when there's somebody... Uh, nowadays, this is more and more common. It used to be if you were... Like, there was a news correspondent with a Latino last name. And they would talk in a very anglicized voice until they said, Oh, and then the suspect was sound near Santa Rosa. <laughs> but now it seems like white people are supposed to do this too. For instance, when I did company in Pullman, Washington, the lady that played Marta uh, happened to be a Puerto Rican. And so like she pronounced her name Marta when she introduced herself. And then like Bobby, the white dude playing Bobby did that too. Like, oh, uh, Peter Susan, this is Marta. Um, yeah, I guess that's what we're supposed to do now. We're supposed to, I, I feel like it's offensive or it's, it's, it's weird to do. I can't imagine myself doing it like in front of a Latino person being like, did you guys want to maybe go get some flautas? <laughs> oh, God. Yeah. My point is, don't cry for me, Argentina. Um, the self-important way that she's talking about herself is insufferable. I wonder, too, if it's like the, her, the character of Ava Perone is similar to the character of Jesus Christ in Jesus Christ Superstar, where this is the hero of the piece, but um, they're annoying. They're written probably because Tim Rice is an annoying person that can't write, or just like he is writing people that are sympathetic to him. I don't know. I don't like Ava Perona and I don't like the, the Jesus Christ that's in Jesus Christ Superstar. I got no problem with uh, the actual gentleman, Jesus Christ. I'm sure he was great. Uh, Rainbow uh, High and then Rainbow Tour are the next two songs. Oh, no. First, we got High Flying Adored, which was one of the audition songs in high school and uh, a song that the piano player at the restaurant uh, that I almost just named... One of these days, I'll just name it. This is the stupidest thing to keep close to my vest. This Italian restaurant with singing waiters, the piano player, when nobody is singing, he will noodle on High Flying Adored. And sometimes I'd be surprisingly good for you. I skipped that song because I think it's useless. Uh, eyes, hair, mouth, figure, face, diamonds, excitement, magic. Not in that order. Um, my girlfriend, by this point, was bored with the show and ready to bail on it. But... Um, when she heard, they need to adore me, so Christian Dior me, she was on board. She was back. She's like, oh, I'm back in. She thought that was charming. I think it's stupid. Uh, apparently, to represent the working class, you know, you need to dress to the nines and have expensive makeup on. I don't really get the connection there. The Rainbow Tour, um, you never, you don't know what a squandered opportunity is in the movie, that is in the movie, until you listen to the original cast recording, because Mandy Patinkin... I swear to God, if I hit that hi-hat one more time, I'm ending this episode early. I'm disgusted with myself. Mandy Patinkin does accents, is, uh, is what I'm trying to say here. Um, and, and I can only guess, I don't have this information, but I, I can only guess that it must have been a similar thing that he did on Sunday in the park with George, where they had this idea of a vocoder to do the voice of all the dogs. And then he was like, let me just do the voices. I bet you he came to the table saying, can I do a Spanish voice and an Italian voice and a French voice? And it is so fucking funny, all three of them. Um, I am not, I, this, this time I'm actually not. I'm not going to say I'm not and then do it. I'm actually going to not try to imitate it here because it's just too good. Go on your Spotify or your Apple Music and just, it's, it's, it, it starts, let's call it like eight seconds into the song. 
after one line from Perón, he's doing a Spanish accent. And then, but then don't give up there because then you got to hear the fucking Italian one and the French one. They are hilarious. It's funnier even than you think it might be. Um, and, uh, you know, it, 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 yeah, Inigo Montoya, etc. And this also, if you're watching the show with any kind of um, cognizance of world events of the 20th century, which I don't think I had in 1996 at the age of 13, and then I didn't think about it through high school. I was just into the musical theater of it all. Like you watch this and you're like, hang on. Juan Perón is friends with General Franco in Spain. And that's why, you know, I've heard people say Juan Perón is a dictator. Juan Perón is a fascist. Or no, Juan Perón isn't. What the fuck is Peronism? This musical doesn't tell you. I tried to do research on this. I think when I was younger, too, I, I, I was confused because I thought in terms of good and bad and light and dark and uh, the, the Democrat and Republican. So I was like, wait, are they the good guys or the bad guys? Because then it shows all these bad things they did. But, you know, I, I, I hesitate to take anybody seriously from my own country who talks of dictators because I've heard talk of Hugo Chavez and Fidel Castro when use of labels. And I live in a country with no moral authority to make such judgments. Okay. And I mean, the idea of Perón being a dictator, a lot of it came up from uh, Spruill Braden, a U.S. diplomat at the time, who was protecting U.S. interests. And, uh, you know, later it was, you know, with the United Fruit Company that just came and raped all of fucking South America. So I... You know, I guess they let some Nazi war criminals into Argentina in the late 40s. Um, and the, the allegedly, you know, Juan Perón did this to try to acquire some of that advanced German technology. But Ava Perón had nothing to do with this. Anyway, I don't want to take a stance on this because I'm an ignorant American. Um, but I also would never, you know, presume to be in a position to write a musical about it. And these guys are. These guys did write a musical about it. And they have practically nothing to say about it. Like there should be some sort of stance or point of view, but there really isn't. And, um, or just like the story being told. You can use, and if you try to say this to somebody, they, what they'll say to you is like, that's not the point. It's the story of this woman. It's just a character study, but it's not a good one. And it's like, I, I find myself just being curious all the way through of like, wait, what's happening with, Perone and is he shutting down free speech? What or what? What the fuck? Anyway, the money kept rolling in. That song is nice. Mandy Patinkin rocks at it. He goes ah, ah, ah. And there's the whole thing. <laughs> the falsetto, running, 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 running. It's great. Um, it gets into she is a diamond in there. Dull gray lives. I forgot to mention, so, so so Jonathan Price plays Perone in the movie. And Jonathan Price just has a face that you want to sympathize with the minute you see it, which is why uh, he's so effective in Glenn Glary, Glenn Ross, getting uh, scammed by Al Pacino and then coming back and, like, feeling guilty uh, that he did something wrong. And it's like, oh. But, like, he lends a little bit of, uh, I think, um, like, I, I feel like I'm meant to like this one Perone of the movie Evita because of 
who they cast and the way that he's behaving. Uh, I mean, Bob Gunton seems a little more devilish. Maybe he wasn't when he was younger. But um, This song, She is a Diamond, it's a little condescending. Um, she says, you know, on the other hand, she's all they have, they being the people. She is a diamond in their dull gray lives. Which is, I don't get what the fuck Ava Perone is to these people. She's a diamond in their dull gray lives. They, they, they don't talk a lot about whatever philanthropy she may have done. I know the money song does that, but it also talks about the Swiss bank accounts, whatever. But like, so she is a diamond uh, in their dull gray lives. And that's the hardest kind of stones that usually survives. So these people that are starving and poor, she did a great thing for them because she is very shiny and they can look at her. And then, you know, it tells us that, um, Peronism, uh, Peron silenced his critics, uh, the, the, the La Prensa, one of the few newspapers that dares to oppose Peronism, has been silenced. And there's a, a little Mandy impression for you, um, which uh, is pretty bad. I think we can agree that's not good to shut down a newspaper that opposes your presidency, which, uh, you know, who else did that? Abraham Lincoln. We talked all about it, didn't we, folks? Longtime fans, the Assassins episode. That you did silence your critics in the North by hurling them into prison without benefit of charge or trial. Once we get into the waltz for Ava and Shay, um, in the movie, they kind of do a thing where it's like she collapses from uh, whatever her fucking sickness is, and then Shay collapses from uh you know a protest like he gets hurt and it's like they're both having like a mutual uh vision but you don't need to do that in theater in theater you can just have people and uh walk up to each other <laughs> so uh and do and have a waltz and it's not uh, didn't happen in any actual time and place and this is the only time that these two actually interact and when it starts you're like oh good we're gonna get some answers answers to questions like for instance What's the point of all this? <laughs> Why? What is the, uh, what are the two arguments and who's right? And, uh, you don't get answers to those questions. I mean, he says, he asks her some good ones in the beginning. You know, uh, how can you claim our, you're our savior when those who oppose you are stepped on or cut up or simply disappear? Her response to that is like, how can one person like me change anything? <laughs> what do you expect me to do? Uh, even if I live for 100 years, I, I can't solve war or pollution or anything. Uh, so, well, that wasn't the question, Evita. We were asking why you're silencing your critics, uh, which is, that was the question you, you failed to answer. Also, she's like, tell me before you get onto your bus before joining the Forgotten Brigade. Not so forgotten. Che Guevara is still hanging in the fucking windows of uh, college students worldwide. So, fuck you. <laughs> Arguably, uh, would you? Is it safe to say Che Guevara is remembered uh, to a larger extent than Eva Peron is? I would say probably is. The whole the problem is so. There's some truth in the refrain that they sing together. They sing, "There is evil." Ever around fundamental system of government quite incidental. I didn't give any thought to what that might mean in high school. But yeah, there's some truth in there. That like, yeah, uh, tyranny breaks out everywhere. It doesn't matter what the system of government is. 
So if you're admitting that, then what the fuck are you doing? Like, what are we doing here? What is good about you? Do we like the Perones because they're a democratically elected administration? I don't get it. I don't understand. And, you know, the people that are on Team Blue and Team Red in America could, uh, you know, there is evil ever around. Fundamental system of government, quite incidental. Party, quite incidental. Tyranny breaks out everywhere. But then there's no answer to these questions, really. The And, conveniently, the whole question of politics disappears because she's sick and it becomes a teary drama about her illness. And, you know, in her death, she gets to become you know, the quote-unquote spiritual leader of the nation, which they actually call her that, uh, you know, in Argentina, or called her that. I don't know how anyone in Argentina feels about any of this anymore, which is, uh, <laughs> maybe might be good to know. But you get different answers from different people, probably, I imagine. She says, oh, what I'd give for a hundred years, but the physical interferes. It's a lot like Hamilton in that way, which who was another complicated figure that might not deserve hero status in a musical. I think talking about these figures like this gives them a flattering, inflating effect, the subject of your musical. Because if you're suggesting that if they just had more time, they would have done great things. Like, rather it, rather than looking at what they did, like, you know, uh, fucking Wall Street, in Hamilton's case, uh, we're saying like, oh, they could have done so much more if only they only had time. And it, by the time she sings that deathbed song, it's enough already. Like the arc of her dying, whoo, it goes on and on. And she talks about herself on her deathbed so self-servingly, just like she did in Don't Cry For Me, Argentina. She sounds like the dude from The Kid Stays in the Picture. You know who I mean? <laughs> just in the way that she's just like, and, and I think it's just bad writing. It's just, uh, it's a showing rather than telling thing. It's because Tim Rice is bad at his job, and so he's just like, what is the legacy of Evita? This is what it is. Let's have her say that. But if you say it about yourself, you look like an asshole. So yeah, I mean, the movie all the way through is, I mean, it's like it's exciting at the top of it, especially if you haven't seen Mandy and Patty. My oh, God, Mandy Patinkin and Patty Lapone. I just disgusted myself by calling them Mandy and Patty. I don't know why. I don't know what my problem is. It's boring. The movie's boring. Um, it's very Andrew Lloyd Webber in the sense that it starts with energy and then drags. Um, the reason the movie is so bad is because the performances are bad. And the last act, her death, goes on for centuries. It never fucking ends, man. Forever. Oliver Stone was involved in this for some reason. He, like, co-wrote the screenplay. Uh, anyway... We get somebody called Jimmy Nail playing uh, Magaldi. Uh, I, I just like that name. They, uh, the Art of the Possible. This is just a little tidbit. That's a song they shortened. And on, in the, on stage, I think this was a Harold Prince thing. I feel like this was fun to see on stage because Harold Prince knows his way around a musical and how to direct one. Art of the Possible was a game of musical chairs. And... Um, but it's like, one has no rules, is not precise, one rarely acts the same way twice. When we were watching the movie, Antonio Banderas sings like one verse of that, but in the subtitles, instead of one, it said Juan, J-U-A-N, like Juan Perón. I was like, what the fuck? 
it didn't anyway i i didn't know if that was a subtitle mistake or if that was something that the uh movie was doing they added a song in the movie too because they wanted to win an oscar and you can only win an oscar if you have an original song that was written for the movie so they wrote a song called you must love me very pretty melody and this is classic andrew lloyd weber pretty melody empty in all other respects it's more about you know even more about evita's desire to be loved so evita final thoughts this is a narrative character piece but an empty one it fails to make an argument for why anyone should like this woman or what she even did i mean it seems like what she did was say things that were the things that all politicians say. And Che is right. She did nothing for years. She was a symbol, but an empty one. And the central question asked in that great opening number, but who is this Santa Evita? This is never answered. And they don't make an argument for what was good about her. And they don't make any criticisms about her that are very coherent. So, I don't know. I, I think this one's in the L category. Let me give you a couple of uh, quotes from the New York Times article. This is Walter Kerr. He said, um, we almost never see any of these things happen dramatically on stage. We hear about them secondhand, mainly from the omnipresent Che, who slips in and out among the dancers to tell us that dirty deeds are afoot. Whenever Che is briefly silent, we are getting the news from lyrics or recitatives sung by top-hatted aristocrats, breathless messengers, almost anyone at hand. It is rather like reading endless footnotes from which the text has disappeared, and it puts us into a kind of emotional limbo we inhabit when we're just back from the dentist, but the Novocaine hasn't worn off yet. That's very well put. And I never really thought of that. And I think this is because these idiots wrote it as a concept album first, where they had to tell the story. And then they didn't make enough uh, meaningful changes to put it on stage where they were like, we can have people do things with their bodies visually. And they kept it all the way that it was. The movie, on the other hand, shows a lot. Like it's a very busy movie, like showing a lot of scenes. But it also tells. It like shows and tells simultaneously. So anyway, the last word of Walter Kerr's review is uh, sums up my review. So basically, you could have just read that review without listening to the last hour of this podcast. He says, You go home wondering why the authors chose to write a musical about materials they were going to develop so remotely, so thinly. That's Evita for you, folks. I don't need you to like Evita. I kind of need you to like Oh, What a Circus and a few of the songs. And I need you to like Mandy Patinkin's performance. But uh, that'll do it. That's Evita. It's time to move on to our next show, Miss Saigon. And the thing about the shows this week, um, I never uh, explicitly promised to do a show I liked and a show I didn't like. (laughs) And uh, thank God, because I can't this week. I made the connection between these two. These were just two shows I wanted to talk about, but... Like I said, what they have in common is that sort of loose, half-assed history being the backdrop for a story about people that you don't care about. Miss Saigon has some moments um, that are good, and we'll talk about what they specifically are. Um, Anyway, uh, this is the first musical that we've talked about that was written by the French guys, which is what I tend to refer to them as because it's... uh, 
It's a real task saying these fucking names. Claude-Michel Schoenberg and Alain Boublil. Ugh, I think if I have to say their names at any point uh, later in this episode, I'll just call them by their first names. It's easier to say Claude-Michel or Alain. Anyway, um, they made Les Miserables, okay? Big, big thing, took the world by storm, hooray. And to a lot of people today, Les Mis is uh, their whole musical theater world because it's a universe unto itself. There's a lot of people that may or may not like musical theater as a form that are big Les Mis heads. And uh, also some uh, opera-adjacent people that Les Mis is the way that they let their hair down and cut loose. It's like punk rock to them uh, from their opera, uh, the formal restrictions of opera. They, Les Mis is like, uh, oh, let's have a little bit of fun. And so they, they made Les Mis, and everyone's like, whoa, this is the best thing in the whole world. And then they made this, Miss Saigon, and everyone's like, uh, okay, uh, cool. Uh, good job, guys. Yeah, you did it again, I guess. And then after this, they make anywhere between two and four pieces of shit that no one's ever heard of. Look, I'm Martin Gare. There will be no Martin Gare episode. Because that would require me to listen to the soundtrack of Martin Gare, which I tried at the age of 17 and uh, made me fall asleep. Figuratively and literally, Miss Saigon, the inspiration for Miss Saigon, it all began with a photograph. And they love to tell you about it. It's in the disc jacket of the CD, uh, and it's all over the goddamn uh, everything. There's a documentary about the making of Miss Saigon that I saw in high school, and I did not have the time nor the inclination to watch today before doing this episode, but there's a lot of fun things in there. A lot of footage from rehearsals. Looks very exciting. This photograph is uh, Claude Michel. He sees it one day in a magazine and it's a photograph of a child boarding an airplane uh, who is a, a son of the GI and mother is crying because they're sending him to America. It's the ultimate sacrifice. Giving up your child. Um, and he's, a, he's the son of an American GI and a Vietnamese woman. And so they have this uh, lightning in a bottle idea to adapt the Puccini opera Madame Butterfly from 1904 into uh, the, the narrative of the end of the Vietnam War and the aftermath of the Vietnam War, etc, etc. Um, if this is based on a Puccini opera, you ask, why did I not pair it with Rent, which is also based on a Puccini opera? Well, that's none of your fucking business. Um, I, the thing about this idea is, like, it's kind of clever. It's kind of, uh, it kind of uh, tracks. I'm taking a, a class this semester in ancient literature. And each time I, I read excerpts from these things, like uh, the, the, the Book of Job or the fucking Iliad or the, and the uh, Aeneid and so on, like I keep trying to think of ways to adapt them into mu musicals. Um, by the way, I already in high school, I'm sorry to say, wrote an entire musical of the Epic of Gilgamesh. But it wasn't uh, in the tradition of this, where you you take the story and then apply it to a more modern situation. I wrote a very uh, Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat-esque uh, edition of this, where all of the names were there. And anyway, um, this is the story of a king called Gilgamesh. That's uh, opening number. It's not good. I should tell you it's not good. And... Um, most of it is, is uh, lost uh, and not recorded, thankfully. 
Miss Saigon opens in London in 1989. And um, so when they did Les Mis, I guess Alain, we'll just call him Alain, and st stop trying to struggle through the last name, he wrote the lyrics in French. And then they had uh, Herbert Kretzmer translated into English. And then a whole host of other people the world round uh, translated into their own language. Uh, Miss Saigon, uh, sorry, uh, Les Miserables is uh, everywhere. They, they do it in every goddamn country. Everyone loves the hell out of Les Miserables, except for me, Chris. Um, in this case, though, in Miss Saigon, uh, Alain worked uh, with uh, Richard Maltby Jr. on the lyrics. Uh, Malt, uh, Richard Maltby of Maltby and Shire. And presumably started writing it in English. And they had this uh, fella around to make sure it didn't sound too dumb, because uh, I don't think English is Alain's first language. In fact, I know it isn't. He's French. Miss Saigon, this very day, uh, is the, the 14th longest running musical in Broadway history. I should tell you that. Um, it ran for a decade, uh, 1991 to 2001. Michael Feingold in The Village Voice, he didn't like it. He called it implausible. He called it trite and savorless. He called it a trick of exploitation. However, Frank Rich of the New York Times, who I like, I like Frank Rich. He, uh, he's, he, he wrote some great reviews. I've read his autobiography, believe it or not, and he was involved in Succession, one of the best shows on TV in the last few years. He liked it. He called it a, a gripping entertainment of the old school. Uh, among other pleasures, it offers melodies, spectacular performances, and a good cry. <laughs> so the show Miss Saigon is controversial for a few reasons. I think it's mostly... Uh, because of the ugly stereotypes and the yellow face of the original Broadway cast, which we will get into in a moment, I promise. But I think what's really wrong about it, uh, what's really wrong with it, <laughs> is best described by a gentleman called Richard Fung, who is a Trinidadian Canadian critic. He said in 1994, quote, if Miss Saigon were the only show about sexually available Asian women and money-grubbing Asian men, it wouldn't be a stereotype and there would be no protest. Negative portrayals per se are not a problem. But uh, the way in which the media repeats these stereotypes ad nauseum has a damaging effect on the self-esteem of Asian Americans, especially Asian American women. This makes sense to me. Uh, they make a similar point in that Netflix documentary Disclosure. Uh, about trans representation in film. I have to hand it to that documentary, Disclosure. That movie changed my mind about a few things in ways that I had not expected it to. And one of the talking heads in there, they're saying the, they, they talk about how the solution to bad representation is just a whole lot more representation. Because if you saw, like in that case, trans characters all the time, like if that was something that was always represented, one or two clumsy representations wouldn't matter. But, you know, like in the case of Miss Saigon, you know, in 1989, there are precious few opportunities to see Asian characters in musicals, other than the obvious two, the fucking uh, South Pacific and Flower Drum Song, which sucks. But, um, you know, here they are. You, you, finally, an Asian girl who loves Broadway can get a part, and all of the women are hookers. And there's, you know, there's or Orientalism, there's some weirdness in there. The American scholar Yutian Wang says that it promotes an image of, quote, a feminized and infantilized Asia serving as a low-budget whorehouse for the West. 
Um, and they show this in Vietnam and Thailand. Like the whole, most of the second act is in Thailand. They're doing the same thing where it's just like a sex tourism place and that's all that it seems to mean. And so they keep threatening to make a movie of Miss Saigon. They never have. Um, Lee Daniels was going to make one. Danny Boyle was going to make one. The millionaire asshole Cameron McIntosh said that they would make one. They're going to wait and see if the Les Miserables movie was successful and then they might make it. Well, it was successful, but that was over a decade ago and they still haven't made it. So he broke his fucking promise. But who, who needs that? We don't need that. There's a great entry point for this if you have Broadway HD. It's the 25th anniversary edition. That, I watched that today. I'd seen it, uh, like, parts of it before. But I watched it all the way through today. It made me like Miss Saigon more than I thought possible. They, like, r revived in more ways than one. Um, or they, 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 they animated <laughs> Miss Saigon, which was kind of a dead-in-the-water shitty thing. They gave it life. Great performances by uh, Eva Noblezada and John John Briones. I am so sorry if I'm mispronouncing those names. I have little to no personal history with this show, except just like most musicals in high school, I did a deep dive and I, you know, uh, memorized many of the songs and I read, oh, what's the synopsis? And okay, here's this song and performed it in my little room all by myself. I do have a strong memory of walking upstairs, hustling upstairs from the Metro Red Line with a disc man and headphones listening to If You Want to Die in Bed from Miss Saigon, pretending that I was in a movie musical. And I did this a lot. I love the idea of singing while walking really fast. I think more movie musicals should have people walk really fast while they sing. I don't know. Maybe not. There's, uh, just, just to go through the arc of the show here real quick. I don't know if we'll hit two hours today. I feel like we won't get anywhere near. There's an intro to Miss Saigon with, uh, that's gone through several different drafts. And in fact, the show itself, and I don't know where this happened or when this happened. I don't know if the London cast uh, had a thing and then they rewrote a bunch of it for the fucking Broadway cast. But anyway, my point is I listened to two different versions when I was younger. And in watching the anniversary edition today, there were a lot of lyrics that I was not familiar with. Being like, oh no, I memorized different lyrics to that song, etc. Um, in this intro, we meet the engineer. Now, this is everybody's problem, uh, and for good reason. Uh, it was played by Jonathan Price, who we just talked about from the Evita movie. He played the engineer in England, in the original England, London cast, and nobody cared. However, they moved the show to Broadway, and Actors' Equity gets involved, and they say, uh, no, you cannot cast a white actor in this role. Uh, this is an Asian-American role. You can't have a white guy doing it. In fact, um, Henry David Huang, the playwright, and the actor B.D. Wong, they both wrote public letters of protest to them casting Jonathan Price in this role. And that brings up an important point. So they were both involved in M. Butterfly. I mean, involved in the sense that Henry David Huang wrote it and B.D. Wong starred in it. Which, my God, like, what a much better and richer interpretation of Madame Butterfly than Miss Saigon is, M. Butterfly. I've never seen it on stage, but I've read the play. I've read it. And, um, yeah, I mean, they took it to a whole... I can imagine if you were Alain and Claude Michel, and you're writing this thing, this Miss Saigon, and, like, a year before you get it off the ground in 1988, M. Butterfly sweeps uh, the Broadway stage, straight plays, you're like, God fucking damn it! 
that we're also adapting M Butter Madam Butterfly, and it's nowhere near as good as what these guys are doing. But anyway, so uh, when there's all this protests about Jonathan uh, Price being cast, Cameron McIntosh, the millionaire producer asshole, talks mad shit to everybody. He threatens to shut the whole things down. He gets all these newspapers to write op-eds supporting him because he's a very powerful man. And uh, fucking Actors' Equity says, okay, fine. You can have a white guy play an Asian guy. It's okay. The weird thing is, in this documentary, I remember this, like... They go out of their way to cast Asian actresses to play the female roles. They do a worldwide search for the title role of Kim. That's not the title role. It kind of is. Of Kim, the lead role. Um, they do not do such a search for the male Asian roles. The engineer and Tui, who's played by Keith Burns, another whitey. But in this worldwide search, they find Leah Salonga, who is now famous. Uh, she's Filipina. They found her in Manila during their worldwide search. She was 18 years old. And she's great. Um, if you don't think you know Leah Salonga, you probably do because she's the voice of Princess Jasmine in the Disney movie and the voice of Mulan in that Disney movie. When Miss Saigon goes to Broadway, Actors' Equity tries to say that they can't cast her because she's not American. And they say, let's give this job to an Asian-American actor. Cameron McIntosh, he tells them, I cannot find a satisfactory replacement. So they reverse that ruling too. Obviously, Cameron McIntosh has a lot more sway with Actors' Equity than Andrew Lloyd Webber and his team did. But, like, really? You couldn't find one Asian woman that's good in New York City? Fucking bullshit. Um, I saw Leah Salonga in Flower Drum Song in 2001. It was like a cleaned-up, rehabilitated interpretation they did at the Mark Taper Forum, R.I.P., uh, it's shut down right now. It may come back. The song The Heat Is On in Saigon, very catchy. Um, and it really captures the vibe of uh, the, the time period. It's very Animal House, boogie-woogie with horns. Of men behaving badly. The Heat Is On in Saigon. Um, some of the lyric changes in this, I noticed, because we meet Chris and we meet John... Uh, Chris is our romantic lead, and I think the lyrics that I had learned that he originally sang were when he has his little section like, oh, the meat is cheap in Saigon, uh, we lost the war long ago, something, something, like he makes some political statement, but here he just says, I used to love to get stoned waking up with some whore, I don't know why I went dead, it's not fun anymore, and that's a little more interesting that this is just a fucking idiot guy, and it's just like, why, why am I feeling jaded, I don't know. Um, have the first sign of trouble after all of the fun of he is on in Saigon, which I but I guess there's some trouble in there if you don't like the fact that the, the, the women are whores, but uh, they're sex workers, strippers. The movie in my mind um, is a hooker with a heart of gold moment, and it's um, it's another example of the, the writers having contempt for their audience. It's like we have to be told that the stripper doesn't like being a stripper. Because we couldn't have maybe in, inferred that ourselves. It's also like way too big for the second song in the show. It's like a big fucking emotional powerhouse moment. And it's like there's going to be so many more of those. It's like can we, let's save that energy. And I can't help thinking they just wanted to get more ladies in there. The part of uh, Gigi. Give her a song. Um, 
you know, and this romantic lead, Chris, uh, a.k.a. Captain Savaho, he's got this love at first sight, but he still lets his friend buy this girl for him. But we, at least he feels super bad about it. <laughs> um, instead of being like, wait, don't buy her for me as a prostitute. I'm in love with her. I just want to see if she'll go get a cup of coffee. So he lets, he has sex with her and then he sings Why God Why, a super crappy song. I have it memorized from singing it in my room. I want to play the part, maybe because my name is also Chris. Um, and then they have their little uh, musical conversation and just melodrama pervasive. Talking about the, the village being burned and, and so on. It just keeps on going. They sing a song, which is one of the more famous songs from the show, Sun and Moon. You are sunlight and I moon. If you're a Sopranos fan, this is the song that Meadow uh, was going to do in the talent show with that guy on the bass guitar. They're practicing in a room and then Tony's like, keep it down. I'm trying to sleep. And then it's very sweet. And he's like, oh, sounds good. How you doing? Uh, it's a nothing song. And then like a few minutes later, they're going to sing Last Night of the World, which is a better love song. And it's just like, you know, there's too many fucking love songs. Like we get it. Okay. He loves the, he loves her. I used to love the telephone song. And in the 25th anniversary edition, they stage it exactly how I imagined it in my head. And it made me so happy. Because I, I also wanted to play John. And I did that lame thing where I was a teenager and I tried to be all parts at once in my bedroom. But like I was like, yeah, when John is singing his part in the telephone song, like there should be people coming in, like handing him forms that he's signing. And he should be like picking up things and like doing like very busy. And that's exactly how they did it. And it made me very happy. There's a stupid line in that that they cover by calling attention to how stupid it is. Where she's like, uh, she is no whore. You saw her too. She's really more like the April moon. Uh, it is my contention that the Frenchman that wrote this show really thought that that was a great line and that it was really poetic. But at some point in some version, they had John go, April fucking moon. And then it became a laugh line, which uh, saves it. Uh, the marriage ceremony. It's pretty. It, it did remind me, it's a lot like what they were doing in Pacific Overtures, where it's kind of, I don't want to be the fucking problematic police here, but it's fine. So if you're American, white American composer, it's fine if you want to play around and use the Asian pentatonic scale and play in that area. I'm not one of these people that says that you... There's such a thing as appropriation, but I'm less convinced of that in music because music is a conversation. And every single genre of music that has ever existed has come from other elements and people sharing music with other people. So whatever. So you're playing in that area. You're like, oh, it'd be interesting to write in the pentatonic scale. But you do get the sense in this, Miss Saigon and a little bit in Pacific Overtures, that there's this underlying assumption that Asian American people cannot do this for themselves. And it's weird. It's weird. Because, um, I don't know. It's weird. We meet Tui. I, I, uh, I wished I was Asian so I could play Tui. I still wish I was Asian so I could play Tui. Um, he comes in. Uh, he's a very, very evil man originally. And then they did some edits to it. They made him a little more sympathetic. Um, there's a weird thing in that scene where it reinforces this idea, this American idea that like, um, the American man needs to save Kim from her own people, sort of. Because he's there, and then guns are drawn. And it's kind of like uh, we're having a whole other Vietnam War right there in that room. When the American Captain Savaho comes in with his gun. And it's like, it's, this wasn't even written by Americans. 
Like it's, I guess it's for the American market, but you know, it's written by French people who also fucked up that country <laughs> before we did. That was the whole, they were the first ones there fucking it up. Uh, so, and there's a weird line where it just, um, my parents got themselves killed. Uh, Tui is telling her, you're promised to me. Your parents promised that you would marry me. And then she says, my parents got myself, my, fuck, my parents got themselves killed in the week you changed sides. If there were promises, all of them died when they died. That neatly solves the problem, right? That, okay, he's a communist uh, Viet Cong now. And so that's why we don't like him. Um, it's weird. I don't know. What am I trying to say with that? Why do I even make a note of that? Who gives a shit about any of this? They, uh, in this revival edition, they really make Tui more sympathetic, which is a task. I mean, this is a guy that tries to stab a baby to death. <laughs> um, tries to, uh, what is that? What is the word called? Honor kill. He tries to honor kill the bastard son of his intended but when he dies and she cries over his body, it really is like he's just her cousin and she does love him. It's complicated. It's like way, uh, anyway, whatever. There's a big time jump. That hasn't happened yet, by the way. I'm getting ahead of myself. Um, there's a big time jump. Where they do the morning of the dragon. The uh, Ho Chi Minh is in power, I guess. And it, it's very cool. I guess it's supposed to be scary and it is, but you know. But again, uh, you know. I, I don't feel great about the West telling me what is or isn't uh, bad. The Tui scene, because there's a little whatever. There's the, the one of the best parts of the whole show is that Tui scene that ends with the uh, "Don't touch my ch boy." <laughs> um, it's it's amazing. It's really good. They sort of failed backwards into a good song. They, they, okay, you know, honestly, Miss Saigon overall is better, I think, than Navita. Um, and I stand by that. Sorry. But, um, but this, uh, on the album, I just melodically, the, the, no one must ever see this thing you're showing me. That bastard fouls our name. My baby's not to blame for what I've done. Um, it gives you chills. They did a great job in the, um, <laughs> anniversary cast, except for the part where, um, I am talking of life or death now. I am talking of staying free. That's in the middle of a scene. They talk in those weird general terms just because they wanted to have the engineer, Kim, and Tui sing the same line at the same time. And it's like, oh, what's uh, common about these people right now? I, that they're talking of life or death and talking of staying free. <laughs> anyway, it's stupid. It's unnecessary. It reminds me of the song Make Me Happy in Wild Party, which is uh, one of the better songs in Wild Party. But then there's a middle section where they really wanted that three-part harmony. So they have the three characters in the, that are in, you know, one of them is pulling a gun on the guy that's just like fucking his wife. And the wife is trying to make him put the gun down. And the guy is saying, you know, don't go back to this guy. And they all sing <laughs> because the, 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 the composer and lyricist wants them to sing at the same time. They sing completely general weird shit that no one would ever say, which is, In my hands the future is dying, rising high and dying in vain. In my hands salvation is nearing, steering me from permanent pain. With my hands I'm asking a question, but I know the answer too well. In my hands, heaven or hell. It's very dumb. It's a musical choice trumping a lyrical choice. John John Briones manages to make the engineer funny in the 20, 25th anniversary one. Um, 
and that is a feat because I think I mentioned on a previous episode, the engineer is not funny. It's, it's like the uh, Tenardier and Les Mis. It seems funny because there's all this melodrama going on. But I think this actor like makes the engineer likable for the first time in history. And he deserves a pat on the back for that because fuck, Jonathan Price's engineer was not likable. I'm sorry. When Tui, uh, Tui's line, uh, of course, when she pulls a gun on him, she's like, of course you have a gun and now you'll shoot your cousin and it's a U.S. gun, the gun that lost the war. That's a nice one. It's like, yeah, fuck you. Um, Listen, I got no problem with America in general, but uh, it's just a sick burn on America. Anyway, um, how is this is the hour, not the act one finale, dude? The act act one is long. I mean, the show in total in its totality is very long, but that is a moment. Oh my god, when she shoots Tui, and then it opens up on all those fucking people singing "This Is the Hour." That you you bring the curtain down, and then we go have an orangina. But they don't do that. They uh, they we have to do a couple more songs. We got to sing uh, "If You Want to Die in Bed," which has a line: "No, why was I born of a race that thinks only of rice?" Which, you know, that's, that, that line is fine, but it's weird uh, to have Jonathan Price, a white guy, sing that. Um, is Tam, Kim's son, is he deaf, dumb, and blind? Because this guy seems to react to nothing, even murders that happen in front of him. He just stands there. Um, the last lines of the If You Want to Die in Bed sequence, he says, uh, Hit the ocean sea and says, instead and float there like a cork. Because then it's going to rhyme with um, New York. John John uh, comments on the badness of that lyric, uh, sort of, like he when he performs it. He goes like, uh, hit the open sea instead and float there like a cork. Yeah, sure, why not? A cork. Like he says all that. As if to draw attention to the fact that he doesn't like that he's singing that line. So good for you, John John. I don't like it either. At the end of uh, I'd Give My Life For You, there's a sequence that sounds a whole lot like One Day More with the do 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 da do 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 da do do da do 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 da do 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 Act one finale of, of course, of Les Miserables. So Alain and Claude Michel, one-trick ponies. Act two opens up with a song called Bouidoy that I used to sing on the piano all the time. And, um... This is just my humble opinion. I think this is the most offensive moment of the show. First of all, uh, and if you don't know, the conceit of this song is that it's John, who was one of the GIs that we met in the first act. Uh, he is now a head of some organization, like the Buidoy organization in fucking Georgia, I guess. And he, it's he's trying to help these... Uh, the children of... the Like the ones in that picture that inspired the fucking show. Of, uh, they were... They're... they're pariahs in their countries because they've got half um their west their fathers were (laughs) american soldiers and their mothers were not and a lot of this in real life had to do with rape to be honest with you not uh love stories like it did here um but first of all like in the way he calls himself a survivor (laughs) like all survivors i once thought when i'm home i won't give a damn and like he's in the version that i saw they're using actual photo and video of actual Buidoy to tell a story about a fictional organization that helps them. Like, that rubs me the wrong way. Like, John, the character of John, we saw him as a piece of shit in Act 1. He was not a nice man. He was treating the women like meat and smacking them around. And He calls these children 
the living reminder of all the good we failed to do. And just the way of the phrasing of that, saying they're, they're a reminder of the good that we failed to do, not a reminder of the profound harm that we caused. And then the worst line is when he says, I never thought one day I'd, gr I'd grieve for half-breeds from a land that's torn, but then I saw a camp for children whose crime was being born. First of all, this is what you're saying in your speech to try to get funding for your organization. I mean, just using the fucking term half-breeds. And then also, uh, you know, I, I this seems like, a, it just seems like another excuse for anti-communist rhetoric, which fine, you know, I'm not defending systems of communism. I'm just saying, God, oh my God, the, the, saved by the bell, saved by the bell. I hit the hi-hat again. Um, also the term we doy, <laughs> the origin of that, it, it, it uh, means the dust of life, uh, literally, but I, it was used <laughs> in uh, Vietnam in the 30s to talk about uh, street youths like juvenile delinquents. And like Americans, people in the West call these Amerasian kids, these half Asian, half American kids, uh, because of Miss Saigon. Like Miss Saigon gave the word a new meaning. Um, there's a lot of fucking boring <laughs> dialogue songs in the second act. And the John and Chris thing, I feel like... This story would be a whole lot more compelling if Chris didn't love Kim. Like, if this was just a story about a guy that fucked a stripper while he was stationed in Saigon and didn't love her or care about her, and then the second act is about him having to deal with the fact that he impregnated her and, like, own up to it. But the fact that he, they had a love story is, like, I think ruins this. That, that's my suggestion for rewrites, fellas. Get rid of the love story. I know that breaks the number one rule of musical theater in the golden era, but we're past the golden era. So who cares? Let's do it. Uh, what a waste. It's like a, you could tell they just wanted to cram in a light and funny song and it's bad. It's creepy. It's in Bangkok. Uh, you know, it's uh, sex tourists in Bangkok. Uh, it's a shame. John talking to Kim when he gets there is so fucking condescending <laughs> it's just like now listen i'm gonna tell you something but i want you to understand certain things first and like she's like i already know the story just tell me where chris is the best part of act two and one of the best songs in the show best sequences uh is the fall of saigon flashback sequence it's great uh we'd call this a cena uh leonard bernstein uh, that's a term that he coined. Uh, Stephen Sondheim told me all about it in a book. It's a scene. It's a song and a scene all together. Uh, and of course, there's a film coming out, a biopic about Leonard Bernstein that caused a stir because um, Bradley Cooper had a Semitic nose prosthetic to play him. Now, this whole thing, the fall of Saigon, the whole situation at the end of the Vietnam War, historically, this story is very tricky. I watched a PBS documentary about it. It's fascinating. On the one hand, it's a horror story and it's a tragedy because all of these people were left to die because they were there collaborating with the South Vietnam government. And so therefore, when the Viet Cong came in, they were going to murder anybody that had collaborated with the uh, whatever, the, the, the South Vietnamese. But it's also kind of satisfying as somebody critical of American foreign policy to watch American exceptionalism driven by total denial 
get pushed off the edge like it is there. Like it's, we just said, you know, starting with Kennedy and three presidents in, we, we said fucking, yeah, we'll just fucking go in there and gobble up this country. Just have a long drown out war. We'll make a few bucks for the weapons manufacturers, you know, and don't ask questions, you fucking hippies. Everything's going great. And then this ragtag group of Viet Cong, they chased us out of every city and every town all the way, you know, into Saigon and into our own embassy and then up into the sky on helicopters where we fucking escaped with our tails between our legs. So, you know, it's a, it's an interesting story. And, they, you know, we'd never lost a war, apparently. And, and we lost the war to them. And uh, it humbled us. Uh, well, it should have, but it didn't. We kept doing horrible things. The helicopter on stage is a big deal uh, to everybody. It's like the first thing that I had heard about it. It's similar to the fucking chandelier in Phantom of the Opera. And it's a shame that it's like all about, oh, have you seen Miss Saigon? They fly a helicopter right on the stage. It's because actually that is one of the few good songs that that happens at the end of, The Fall of Saigon. And the song, I dare say, is better than the helicopter. This character of Ellen, Chris's wife, the whole thing in the second act is that Chris is now married to some lady named Ellen. And like, uh, first of all, it's a thankless role for an actress. I would be <laughs> so pissed off if someone made me play Ellen and I was a lady. Like, her only defining feature is wife. There's nothing else that defines her. She's, and then, <laughs> and what she does, you know, they go to Thailand to fucking see Kim because John tells them where Kim is. And Kim comes into their hotel room and Ellen, first of all, she's like, oh, she thinks she's the maid. Like, oh, you can, don't turn the bed yet. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> and then um, when she finds out who she is, she's like, Okay, hey, sweetie, so Chris and I are married, but, like, for real married. Like, we had an American marriage, which is real. I know you had a little ceremony, and that was really cute, and your the flowers and your friends and everything, but that's not, like, a thing. Like, that doesn't, that doesn't mean anything. I actually married him in America, so our marriage counts. Uh, suggestion for alternate ending. Kim should pull that same gun out and shoot Ellen in that scene. I think that would be a great ending. Um... When she finds out that Chris is married to this Ellen character, Kim has a badly written lyric. She says, I feel the walls of my heart closing in. I can't breathe. I can't win. <laughs> like you spent the whole fucking musical looking for this guy, your long lost love, and then you find out he's married. You're like, I can't win. Oh. Chris comes in and he sings a very melodramatic song uh, called The Confrontation. Um, so I wanted to save her, protect her. Christ, I'm an American. How could I fail to do good? All I made was a mess just like everyone else in a place full of mystery I never once understood. I wanted back a world I knew. The story of my life began again with you. So, um, this is fucking charged here this is offensive uh, first of all yeah he's in a place of mystery oh the orient mystery but he wants back a world i knew a white woman to marry it's very fuck, fucking it rubs you the wrong way the whole thing does the engineer's got his big moment he sings the american dream i used to have this memorized in high school i played it on the piano but it's a pretty annoying song it's a song that's repetitive and irritating 
Um, even John John Brione could not save this one for me. The uh, perfume can cover a stench. That's what I learned from the French, written by a French lyricist. That's a pretty good cell phone there. Um, I feel like the, the engineer is played by John John Brione, which, as I said before, is the only sympathetic uh, portrayal of it I've ever seen. Uh, I feel like they, he should have made it to America. Like, that should have been the thing at the end, that he got his... But instead, we get this awful final scene that they just could have not done at all or changed. Like, it doesn't need to be exactly like Madame Butterfly. You could do what West Side Story did, where they're writing a modern story based on Romeo and Juliet, but, you know, Maria does not commit suicide at the end. But they're so fucking literal that they make Kim, their hero, shoot herself. And she shoots herself in the stomach like an idiot. And it's... What was the point? It's all meaningless. It's all just uh, tear-jerking. It helps to have a point. Final thoughts on Miss Saigon. Miss Saigon sucks, because, but there is a halfway decent musical in there somewhere. As it stands now, it's clumsy and it's stale. Can't believe that that anniversary revival got as much out of it as they did. It probably shouldn't be performed anymore, but I'll leave that argument to be made by the Asian American theater community because the last thing the Asian American theater community needs is another well-meaning white liberal theater guy speaking for them. So whatever, I, 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 uh, on its merits, I think it's got some moments, but overall it's a fucking, it's, it's long and it's melodramatic as fuck. Anyway, thank you for listening to the Negativity Hour. This has been I need you to like musicals. I don't have a closing line. I know that that's a big surprise to longtime listeners. I'm going to pause it and find one. All right, we're back. This is not good, but I spent uh, some time on it. A good night and thank you, Miss Saigon and Evita. You're both overrated shows written by overrated guys. I'd love to say more, but I'm sick of this now. I think I was too mean, and I need to go clean up a kitchen that's full of dead flies. There you go. I brought it back around to the beginning. That's what we do. That's what professionals do in the podcasting business. Farewell for now, folks. And when you go to sleep tonight, I want you to remember that you are sunlight and I moon. So get the fuck out of my way. Good night.